Welcome to ASME TechCast, where we bring you the innovators, the innovations, and the issues that push the envelope of engineering. My name is John Kozowatz, Senior Editor of Mechanical Engineering Magazine and ASME.org. Today, we're talking about a topic affecting millions of people in the United States and around the world or at least in the Northern Hemisphere where temperatures are soaring in many cases to unprecedented levels. The extreme heat again brings up the subject of urban heat islands and what can be done to alleviate some of the effects on people. Our guest today is Theo Lim and he is Assistant Professor of Urban Affairs and Planning at Virginia Tech University who is studying climate adaptation in cities and building community resilience to the effects of climate change. And welcome to ASME TechCast, Professor. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good to have you here. Now, you're not an engineer, but you're an urban planner concerned with the effects of heat and climate change on people. We don't talk with engineers uh, exclusively, um, but your work is intertwined with engineering. So. Maybe we can start this off by telling us where your concerns are. Um, well, so global climate change is driving uh, increased temperatures, and we're seeing more and more heat waves happen. Heat waves are happening uh, or are increasing in intensity, duration, and frequency. And frankly, there are cities in the United States that are experiencing, um, as you mentioned, unprecedented um, temperatures that they've never seen before. Uh, I work primarily in Roanoke, uh, which is a small city in Southwest Virginia. It's located in the Appalachian Mountains. And so we're higher elevation, um, which makes our people, compared to other cities in the South, um, Roanoke often is thought of as having a more mild climate. And so people don't think that um, that extreme heat impacts them, but it it does, um, and it is going to get worse. And we want to make sure that um, the residents who are most vulnerable to the impacts of extreme heat are prepared um, to deal with those impacts and risks going forward. So, um, who are these people that are at the most risk? Yes, and and, and where do they commonly live? Yeah. Um, so. Temperature is not equally distributed across the city. Um, and so you have what we call intra-urban heat islands. Uh, and those tend to spatially correlate with other kinds of social marginalization. So areas that have higher uh, proportions of people of color, uh, areas that have higher proportions of low, low income households are unfortunately the areas that also tend to have to experience higher temperatures. And we can talk about the reasons for that in a moment. But the reasons why that is uh, particularly, uh, makes people particularly vulnerable is because those same areas also have fewer resources to deal with the impacts and risks of extreme heat. Um, so for example, we've had heard stories of residents that we work with that choose between running their air conditioner and buying food for example, or um, where folks are um, hesitant to send their children outside where it is cooler outside uh, outside the home than it is inside the home because they have they don't have air conditioning or they have poor weatherization, but they're afraid to send their kids outside because of fear of gun violence. So we have, you know, we see these 
kind of um, overlapping issues um, that uh, are all exacerbated by um, higher temperatures. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, housing affordability issues that are happening all over the United States. Uh, there are more people who are unhoused or underhoused uh, that they are, you know, they deal with the brunt of the impacts of extreme heat. And there are, you know, in Phoenix, Arizona, for example, um, hundreds of people living in encampments that are exposed to temperatures that are, you know, over 110 degrees. That's extremely dangerous. My work with the city of Roanoke and the communities there, um, we do what is called community science, which is where we involve everyday residents uh, in the collection of data and the interpretation of that data. And so, for example, um, the city of Roanoke did a heat island mapping campaign where they took a sensor and drove, um, drove uh, uh, mounted it on a vehicle and then drove that vehicle around the city to understand you know, the differences in temperature around the city. And that was uh, a program that is run through the National um, Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Uh, this summer, we also did another community science camp data collection campaign where we actually had kids wear uh, temperature sensors on their shoes. Uh, and what that tells us is the temperatures that they're actually exposed to. So while you, you can look at um, a map of air temperatures distributed across the city and see the differences there, that may not actually represent the temperatures that people actually experience because you know, people have different uh, levels of air conditioning, people take different modes of transportation, they spend different um, amounts of time indoors versus outdoors. And so we wanted to get a better picture of um, what that looks, temperature exposure actually looks like for individual people across the city. Uh, and so we just um, got the results of that um, a couple of days ago, actually, uh, of that campaign. It was a three-day campaign. Um, but then the kids also uh, brainstormed ways to use that data um, to make positive changes in their neighborhood to mitigate those temperatures. So this is this is like uh, this is grassroots uh, uh, awareness and 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 uh, and looking for solutions. Then exactly, yeah, it serves two purposes, right? It gets the community involved and thereby raises the awareness about heat and temperature in the neighborhoods. Um, but then it also uh, serves a scientific. Um, purpose, which is it helps us collect a, data, a type of data that is not um, that we normally wouldn't have access to, right? Um, how would we know what temperatures people are actually exposed to unless those people are helping us collect those temperatures? So there are there are some uh, there are some solutions that are out there right now that, that larger cities have. I don't. You can tell me of, of Roanoke's uh, of particular uh, issues, but. Let's talk a little bit about awareness. That's a good point. Um, planting trees seems to be an obvious solution to this. Um, and then there are other things like cool pavement. Cool pavement is a, a water-based asphalt treatment that reflects sunlight and brings uh, brings the temperature on pavement down. You were talking about uh, the temperature um, on, on feet. Um, coatings that can be put on roofs or on buildings. Um, Desert cities like Phoenix and Las Vegas are using some of these already, but but other regions in the country are and will be experiencing the same heat and the weather. So, um, how do you how do you see these solutions stacking up in planning and implementation? 
your experience? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, we tend to think of the response uh, and planning in kind of two big buckets. One is um, emergency response, right? When there is a heat wave, the most effective thing is for people to get in the short term, right? Is for people to get cool, to, ha to have them be, uh, to have, make sure that people have access to air conditioning. And so cities will do things like, uh, run emergency cooling shelters and uh, have public service announcements and information dissemination campaigns. And some cities even make their public transit systems free so that people can actually get to, you know, people are not worrying about the cost of transportation or not being able to access cooling centers uh, when there is a heat wave. But, and then the, the things that you're talking about um, are more of the long-term Right? How do we actually mitigate the temperatures um, uh, in the long term through changes in the built environment? So that might be things like um, increasing tree canopy cover, which increases evaporative cooling, which will lower temperatures. Uh, could also be like LA has a shade master plan, right? So where in the city are there what we call shade deserts? There are a lack of shade structures for people who are uh, walking or waiting for transit or just trying to get around in their own neighborhood. Um, and then, as you said, um, you know, technologies like cool pavements and cool, cool roofs, coatings that you can put on that actually reflect um, uh, reflect a sunlight and don't cause those materials to heat up and hold that heat as, for as long. Um, so yeah, those are all things um, that cities can do. Uh, in Roanoke, I think our the priority in my mind is probably to deal with the emergency situation first, because we already know that there are people who um, have suffered, uh, you know, heat strokes in their home, um, and the reason for that is because they have not they don't have functioning air conditioning or they their air conditionings are under functioning. Um, and so it, the first priority in my mind is to prevent people from dying when there's a heat wave. Uh, well, ex extreme heat is the, I, I believe it's the biggest cause of weather-related deaths overall. Yes. Um, and, and studies have shown that there's a link between urban heat island conditions and, and racial segregation, and it's a controversial issue. Um, do you see anything as a working solution to that? This is really tough because if you look at the spatial temperature maps, you can literally see that um, how racism is built into our built environment. And the reasons for that is um, these temp the temperatures, why temperatures are higher in some of these neighborhoods that have higher proportions of racial minorities and low income residents is because those areas have less vegetation. They have higher density of buildings and heat holding infrastructure. So during urban renewal, for example, many of those large infrastructures, highways, convention centers, um, large parking lots uh, were specifically placed in areas that were racially segregated. Um, uh, and so the legacies of that is that those areas also now have higher temperatures because those um, those decisions uh, result in higher temperatures uh, and the cause of higher temperatures in um, the built environment. Um, but um, simply reversing, um, like simply saying that we're just going to plant more trees in those areas, um, which is often the solution that people jump to, um, is 
is a complex issue because often um, the people living in those neighborhoods um, don't feel like they have been a, a part of urban planning processes in the, in the past. And often there are, are issues of deep mistrust in those neighborhoods of, well, why are you, why is now the time when you're telling, you're coming back into this neighborhood that you've disinvested in for decades and telling me we need, and telling us we need to plant trees. Um, they might think that, um, you know, they might be displaced uh, because of gentrification, or they might think that, um, you know, trees require maintenance and who is going to do that maintenance uh, in these areas where they've seen, you know, decades of disinvestment from the city. So there's just a lot of issues of trust there. And that's why um, in my projects, we're, we're looking to authentically engage with the people in those neighborhoods to see from their perspective what the problem actually is and what kinds of solutions they might prioritize. And that, that may or may not be tree planting, right? It may be um, like, for example, when we heard about gun violence in um, green spaces in some of these vulnerable neighborhoods, what the residents were asking for was actually more activation of youth programming um, so that those spaces could be safer. So it wasn't necessarily that they wanted more trees planted or more green space. It was that they thought that there was maybe enough green space in this case, um, but that there needed to be um, youth programming with trusted adult supervision so that youth could actually use that space safely. And by safe, both, you know, I mean, safety, both in terms of exposure to, you know, high temperatures because these are cooler spaces, but also safety from gun violence and uh, gang activity. Um, so that's where I think that authentically engaging with the residents in these areas can reveal uh, more creative um, solutions that will actually be effective in keeping people safe on, in multiple ways. And, and, and how does this coordinate with, uh, with, city, with city planners, with uh, people like yourself and with politicians? Yeah, so um, we're always looking for ways to actually implement um, plans, right? So planning awareness raising is the first step, gaining, uh, building these co uh, political coalitions to elevate the issue of heat and connect it to other issues that people are already doing work on is the first step. But then we wanna make sure that these issues get implemented in climate action plans, uh, in comprehensive plans. And then that translates into infrastructure planning, right? So when we talk about infrastructure planning, we wanna make sure that things like cooling centers, tree planting and increasing tree canopy cover and shade structures get incorporated into what we call capital improvements plans, right? That they're actually in the budget <laughs> so that it doesn't just stay in the plan, but there's a clear way to budget for these things and actually implement them on the ground. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the general field of urban planning is reacting to all this and, and what other what other similar programs might be might be out there? Sure. Well, urban heat islands have been a major area of research for urban planners and practice for urban planners for decades. Like we've all, we've known about the urban heat island effect since you know the you know 1950s or uh, and that's well documented. And I think the reason why there's been a lot more um, emphasis on it now 
is because we have this compounding effect of global climate change driving temperatures and extreme weather, um, you know, it's becoming more severe, essentially. Um, and so um, in cities, I would, I would say that people know about the urban heat island effect, but planning for urban heat specifically is, is, an, is kind of a new area uh, in, many, in many senses. Um, there isn't the same type of regulatory um, framework that we have for dealing with other things like water quality or flooding. Uh, we just don't have that for heat, right? But um, more and more cities are uh, starting to build that regulatory capacity. And so you have cities like you know, Miami and Phoenix that now have heat resilience officers, um, a specific position within the city government that uh, is meant to coordinate the efforts, right? And I kind of mentioned that this is a built environment issue. Um, how do we make the environment cooler through physical interventions? But it is also, you know, a social infrastructure issue, right? How do we do information dissemination among the most vulnerable populations? How do we make sure that social networks are built so that, um, and that social infrastructure is there so that neighbors are checking in on each other? And we know that um, the strength of social networks and social capital is actually one of the, um, most important preventative factors in uh, how some how a neighborhood will fare during a heat wave. Um, so uh, yeah, I think um, you know more and more cities are paying attention to this and um, starting to build up that um, governmental and regulatory capacity to deal with increased temperatures. So, but we may not even be talking about heat waves going into the future. It may just become normalized. Yeah. Frightening thought when you think about it. Um, yes. Um, so, in your work, in your work in the field um, with the with with folks that that live in these um, uh, vulnerable areas, um, how would you describe their how would you describe their their concerns or their attitudes um, and and their willingness to work uh, with you or with the city? That's a great question. So I would say in Roanoke, um, because historically they have not had very severe, um, very hot summers, although that is definitely changing now, um, there actually is not very much awareness that heat is an issue um, uh, among the majority of the population. Um, and so having people um, Kind of focus on this issue is, um, you know, one thing that we're trying to do. Um, how do people respond, especially in the vulnerable neighborhoods, is a really good question because, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of we call these neighborhood. Another way we refer to them is is they're overburdened in many ways, right? They're they have more higher levels of poverty housing insecurity, food insecurity, gun violence. So a lot of these other issues are often more pressing in people's minds than the issue of temperature and heat. Um, and so we definitely do not wanna minimize the kind of acute nature of all of those other issues, but we also uh, want people to know that higher temperatures essentially will exacerbate all of those issues. 
Um, and so that's kind of how we are attaching the issue of heat, not to make it like, you know, heat is more important than all of these issues and therefore you should pay more attention to it, but heat is actually related and will exacerbate all of those other issues. And we need to address all of those issues, which essentially have to do with poverty, right? Um, together. Um, and so when you when you frame it in that way, then uh, what my experience is, is that people will, are much more willing to pay attention because it has to do with their connection to their everyday lived experience, which is so dominated by the experience of poverty um, and what we can what we can do about it. Um, and so um, I think coming in with a kind of I am here to listen, right, and to uh, help build capacity in the neighborhood to deal with the, all of these issues together, um, and then specifically connected the issue of heat to all of these issues is one way that we've been successful in building partnerships with the community. And once we have that kind of approach, um, partnering with the community has been very positive. Um, we've had you know church leaders, community-based artists, NGOs uh, that want to work with us around issues of heat. Um, because frankly, they already see it as a problem, right? They already see um, people seeking out shade, people seeking out air conditioning, um, even access to water, right? There was one NGO in Roanoke that is just handing out bottles of water to individuals on the, you know, on the street because they just don't have access to um, to water uh, and are dehydrated. Um, and then in terms of working with the city, so this is also kind of a contentious issue because um, many of these vulnerable neighborhoods have not had positive experiences working with um, the city because of past experiences with urban renewal, gentrification, um, development decisions that are perceived not to be in the, in the um, to the benefit of these vulnerable populations that actually displace them and raise their rents and you know um, uh, make housing less affordable. Uh, but that is something that we're also working on. So how can we create spaces where um, we're trying to repair these issues of distrust between the city and the most vulnerable populations? Uh, and that takes time, frankly, uh, it's not gonna happen overnight. And it takes a willingness on both sides to listen to each other's perspectives. Well, this is a, a topic or a subject that's going to continue to evolve as we, as, as, time, as time moves on. And I believe we're going to have to leave the conversation here for now. Thank you again for, for sitting down and talking about this with us. And if you or anyone out there in um, viewer land would like to listen to more ASME TechCast on a wide range of engineering topics of issues, you can find them on your favorite podcast app. Thanks again for listening. Uh, my name again is John Kozlowicz.